from a bunker in beautiful Parkchester, the Bronx, it's electoral dysfunction. Now, here's your host, Tom Brennan. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Electoral Dysfunction, the show where comedians and experts debate the news of the week from the safety of their quarantines, even though we don't need to be in quarantine anymore. But as decided on the last show, it's our emotional quarantines that we're all holed up in. Uh, my name is Tom Brennan. Thank you for being with us. And a uh, special bonus episode. Really excited for this. Uh, before we, we get to our main guest, I'm going to invite out uh, my co-host, my colleague, my brother in arms, uh, but not an actual one, Robert George. Robert George of Bloomberg Opinion. Robert, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Tom. Thank you so much. Uh, I guess uh, I guess the phrase that the cliched phrase we've used in the past is uh, uh, "brother from another mother" or something. Mm. You know, some, some, something. Yes, like that. but also uh, different fathers. You, uh, <laughs> Ryan and, doesn't work. And different and different fathers. Uh, yours was around, for example. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Oof. I didn't mean to go that dark so quickly. Yeah. Uh, but, wow. Hey, I have no choice. Uh, but in it, no. We, we 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 should be a little bit more. We should be a little bit more serious here, uh, because um, our special guest um, uh, today tonight uh, uh, is um, someone who's been a uh, friend of the show for some time, and we've had we've had him on with um, with other guests. Um, but his profile just blew up um, uh, this week um, because of certain um, uh, uh, developments that were happening down south. Uh, and uh, so we thought it was a very important um, that we, we bring him on. Uh, our special person, our special friend, is, uh, is Joe Killian, who is a writer with NC, NC Policy Watch. And um, uh, several, several weeks ago, he was the person um, who um, broke um, the story um, that uh, New York Times journalist uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, who is the um, who is the author and the auteur in the big in the in the big intellectual sense of the 1619 project, uh, Joe was the one who um, broke the story um, that. Uh, UNC, which was uh, going to uh, offer her uh, tenure as a journalism professor, um, rescind, um, rescinded that um, apparently uh, at the uh, urging slash interference of a, of a major trustee. And uh, this week, uh, all hell broke loose when UNC rescinded the, rec the rescission of the tenure, offered it to her, and uh, uh, Nicole said, "Thank you. See ya. We're. Uh, I'm. Um, I'm taking my talents and going to uh, the probably the most famous historically bl black college and university, uh, Howard University in um, in Washington D.C. So we thought. Uh, so when that happened, uh, everybody suddenly learned Joe's name, and he was getting called out on social media by people like Neil Gaiman and uh, a lot of other famous folks. So. The most Without famous nerd shouting out Joe Killian. Joe Killian going from Greensboro famous to, to Twitter famous. <laughs> Joe, welcome back to the show. How are you, man? Thanks. I'm all right, go. man. Yeah, the, the welcome, uh, Joe. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a weird, twisty story, and I'm happy to help unravel it. Excellent. I want I'm just gonna quickly say. Uh, what a great week for Howard University for this to happen right after Felicia Rashad uh, praised Bill Cosby's release. That's like, what you want. Someone you want in their public the affairs, time. yeah, someone in their public affairs program was like, could she announce that on Monday that she was joining our school? Great. And Ta-Nehisi <laughs> Coates is coming too. So, hey, it's like, you know, yeah. uh, Felicia who? Yeah, big day for, I, as someone who has worked in social media for controversial or, or powerful people when controversial things have happened, I just want to say to their social media director, uh, uh, I wish I had your luck. So yeah, talk to us a little bit about uh, this story and the whole. And Robert, you did a good job setting setting the 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 table a little bit here. But but talk to us about this story and 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 you know your your findings on it. Yeah. So one of the one of the difficult things about this story is that nobody, including reporters in North Carolina, really knows how this works. How, how a professor gets tenure, how somebody who's not a professor comes on as a tenured professor. So a couple of like important things to understand are that Nicole Hannah-Jones is one of the most decorated working journalists in America. She has 
Peabody and Polk Pulitzer Prize, uh, National Magazine Awards, it, you know, pretty much every major accolade you could have in our business. She she has it. She's been working for twenty years. Before the sixteen nineteen project happened, uh, she had a bunch. She had most of these awards. She got her Pulitzer for commentary for uh, an essay that she wrote in uh, the as part of the sixteen nineteen project. Um, and, you know, she's also very controversial because a lot of her work deals with race in America and the 1619 Project deals with race and history in America. And those are all flashpoints right now. Her work has been singled out for derision by Donald Trump, by his sons, by Tom Cotton, um, <clears throat> by, you know, Tucker Carlson and the, the uh, all winner squad, as we call it. Exactly. Them, you know, yes. all yeah. You, you, a southern a southern um, a, a southern senator named Cotton. Um, you know, criticizing a black woman. Yeah, no problems with the optics there. Yeah, it's it's really a mess. And so, do you think, uh, Robert? Do you think that he asks Tim uh, Tim Scott to get his coffee most days? <laughs> Tom, that, was, that went a little bit too far. Because Tom went, Cotton's a racist. The, the, that one went a little bit too Here's far. The point. Joe, anyway, Joe, Joe, please, continue. Joe, please yeah. continue with your point. So, so you know, she's she's also a, an alum of UNC Chapel Hill's journalism school. She got her master's there, and um, she had a really good experience there. She had a really bad experience as an undergrad at Notre Dame. Uh, then she came to mass to, to get her master's at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. She had a really good experience. She stayed she stayed connected to the school, the Ida B. Wells Society. Uh, she co-founded that, uh, and, and it still is headquartered at UNC. And so over the years, they've invited her back to guest lecture. They've invited her back to do commencement uh, speeches for the journalism department. Um, you know, she's been a big part of, of the school. And so they tried to tempt her into coming uh, to the school to teach. And the Knight Foundation, which sets up endowed professorships at journalism schools all over the place, uh, offered to set up a, a, a what's called a Knight Chair Professorship uh, at the school and the way this works is working journalists. I mean, everybody from Michael Pollan to, you know, a lot of like sort of public intellectuals and people who are involved in journalism are part of this program and they're brought to schools uh, to teach as working media professionals, not as people who are primarily academics. It's been a very successful program. They've been doing it at UNC since the eighties, since the early eighties. And every single night chair at UNC since the early eighties has gotten tenure upon taking the chair. Um, it's just a part of part of the deal. And the way that tenure works at most universities and certainly at UNC is that it starts at the faculty level and faculty members, uh, you know, sort of have a vote and there's a tenure committee and there's this whole vetting system and it moves up to the chancellor and the provost, the provost and the chancellor move it up to the board of trustees, the campus level leaders uh, who are appointed by the general assembly. They're all political appointees and Generally speaking, they say, well, faculty are the experts. Yeah, okay, if you recommend tenure, then tenure. In this particular case, they didn't do that. Um, they didn't deny her tenure and they didn't they, they didn't rescind a tenure offer. What they did was decide not to vote. Uh, they, they, they decided to kill it in committee the way you would in politics, um, which is where, where it got really interesting for me because I'm not primarily a higher education reporter. I, I have spent most of my adult life covering politics of one kind or another. And um, so when I saw this happen, it was familiar to me and I saw what was going on. And a lot of other people, you know, kind of just didn't, not because I'm brilliant, just because that's the milieu I come from. And uh, the higher education system in North Carolina right now is incredibly politicized. Uh, and people who are on the board of trustees at that school and the board of governors, which governs the entire system, are like former Republican lawmakers, active Republican lobbyists, uh, people who are active conservative uh, activists. Uh, and they're, you know, on the board of governors that governs the whole system, there's one Democrat. That Democrat is a, was a lawmaker who lost his primary primarily because he began voting with conservative so often yeah um and so they put him it's on a, the board of governors it's a north carolina democrat <laughs> and, and so they put well it's a black north carolina democrat too oh well, um, well. and they put it they, they uh they put him on the board of governors and said look it's a black guy and a democrat what do you want mm. um so uh, you know what he can't be conservative too um so uh the um so you know th th this is an incredibly political 
situation now. And so, yeah, what they decided to do is kill it in committee. It never comes out of committee. It never goes to the full board. We never vote on it. Therefore, we didn't prevent tenure. We just, it just didn't happen on our watch. Um, and so I had, I, I talked to some people and, and they let me know what was really going on here, which was that there were people who were upset about the 1619 project and they didn't want this to come to a vote because they knew with her credentials, it would be kind of impossible to say she wasn't qualified. So how about we just don't have a vote? And they talked the chancellor and the provost and the dean into accepting this situation where they bring her on with a five-year contract with no tenure, no protection if, you know, people are upset with things that she's teaching or writing or whatever. And um, when this, when we broke this, um, things just went nuts. Uh, and the, the school kind of like locked down in terms of, you know, it's um, uh, letting any information out about this. And uh, she threatened a, a, a federal discrimination lawsuit. Just a second, would you? Can I, can I can I pause you? Sure. Sorry. Bad. I, yep, it is. <clears throat> Sorry about that, that uh, Tom Cotton slam there. Uh, you're on mute there, Joe. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> so... Uh, everything kind of went nuts. There, pause there was... one second just for sure. editing, and I'm just going to start at five, four, three, two, one. Okay. So when we broke this story, you know, everything went nuts, and there was the threat of a federal discrimination lawsuit, and the faculty was enraged, and the students were very upset, and alumni uh, came out of the woodwork saying, you know, this is unfair, and people and from and other George, Sorry, just to get the time frame here. Um, you 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 broke the story about what this because it's been going on for that while now like six weeks two months late ago, May yeah late May, late May so it's been it's been it's been almost um it's it's, it's been uh, six weeks uh, getting close to two months now yeah yeah and you know more and more started coming out about it and uh, other reporters started pulling at things and we stayed on top of the story and you know what what came out was that a very wealthy donor and a graduate of the journalism school himself, Walter Hussman, uh, who is sort of famous and infamous in Arkansas for being an Arkansas media magnate and uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, rival of the Clintons. Speaking of Tom Cotton. I have a quick question. Cotton. In the state of Arkansas, is there anyone who isn't famous slash infamous? Like, well, that is you're notable in that state, you're infamous, right? I mean, yeah. their best export was Bill Clinton. <laughs> There's never, there's never been anybody better with a better name than Orville Faubus, though. I really like that. The former governor, they, you know, he, he he retired as governor and bought this enormous mansion on his government salary. And they asked him how he did it, and he said, "I was frugal." Yeah. Um, Orville, I'll bet he Orville was. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so so Walter Hussman um, in 2019 gave 25 million dollars to the journalism school, and for that donation, they named it after him. It's the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Mm. And uh, Walter Hussman is not a reporter. He's not famous for being a, a journalist. His family had a media empire. They handed it to him. Uh, when he was 27, he was made the publisher of a conservative rival to what was then the largest paper in the state. Um, they took it down <laughs> and, and uh and kept growing that empire. And so he was able to give $25 million to the school and they, uh, they, they named it after him. He had a problem with Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, for what seemed to be chiefly political reasons. Uh, and he made, it, made that known to the Dean, to the chancellor, to the vice chancellor in charge of charitable giving, to a member of the board of trustees. Um, and in doing all of this, he says, I wasn't lobbying. I was just expressing my objections to everyone I could. Yeah. Um, Sounds fair to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, if someone has $25 million, then of course they're not lobbying. They're just offering an opinion. Yeah, uh, I mean, the guy my, did the interview. My favorite part, you mentioned he's not a reporter. Now, as I understood from reading your Twitter thread, that's not what he told you, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I had this interview with him and it was very strange. You know, he, he I was pursuing him for an interview. I couldn't get one. Um, another reporter who is a graduate of the school, himself a donor, who uh, serves on who served on boards with Hussman, managed to get him. And after that came out, 
he called me up like he had like we were old friends and he was like oh i understand that you've been trying to get in touch with me let's talk um and he had this very uh strange affect it was like mr rogers meets bill clinton uh you know this sort of uh folksiness yeah. and he uh he did keep saying you know well J- joe you and i are both reporters you know we're both journalists um, and I thought to myself, you know, well, okay, I know your history and your history is that at 27, your father said, I, I bought you a newspaper, your publisher now, and I'd like you to take over this empire when I'm gone. Um, when I was 27, I was a beat reporter who was like going out to fires and shootings and city council meetings and sitting in magistrate's offices. And, you know, it, it was a very different experience. Yeah. And you can say the same thing about Nicole Hannah Jones. You know, she worked her way up from the Chapel Hill News to the New York Times um, and, you know, came from a family that didn't even have a a history of, you know, college education and certainly not journalism. And so, um, you know, very, very different people with different stories. I would say all of us having worked in publishing, there is something that's kind of like uh, both both nepotism and also sort of like i have to assume he has an older brother who his dad liked more that he was like and you'll have the newspaper <laughs> like, you know and not that long ago not that long ago he made his daughter uh editor of that same. Of so i mean it's just you know keeping it in the family yeah why not uh i by the way i want to just pause here very quickly uh, uh we are cognizant that this is uh there's no women in this conversation uh we reached out to a few women who normally do our show unfortunately they weren't available we had kind of a limited window to record this episode uh but just one it noted that uh when we talk about how hard things are for women out there we are fully aware that we don't really know <laughs> what that's like they tell us we yeah have heard. Like, well that's true yeah i've heard uh <laughs> my uh, we do have a yep. slight idea of what it's like uh, for, uh to be uh, to be black in journalism so sure. there is we we do get yeah. half of the we do get half of the equation i mean the two of you uh can speak more to the hardships of journalism than i can in any respect uh i'm curious why you know so so why do you think joe that this story really kind of caught the attention of the country it it seems like it's and beyond just the like Twitter is where people talk about these things, and certainly that's where it 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 uh, caught a little bit of fire. But it seems like this has really resonated beyond North Carolina and the UNC system. What do you think that is? Uh, well, I think it's a st- it's one of those stories that has everything, right? I mean, you know, um, right now in this country, we're sort of in this rolling uh, racial reckoning, and it is sort of you know going back and forth between polls uh you know where we're talking about um you know police murders and we're talking about uh, profiling and we're talking about you know the big the big new satanic panic boogeyman critical race theory um being taught in schools and we're arguing about american history and we're arguing about uh you know race in american history and so this just came at that sort of perfect time for it to blow up because the 1619 project is part of this huge argument that people are having about America history and race and the the enormous success of the 1619 project has made it a lightning rod for conservatives I think and, there's and also like, and, and Tom Tom if I can if sure. I can just kind of quickly uh, um, jump in here is uh, I, I, even though I've you know, drifted away from um, the uh, Republican Party um, over the last few years. Um, I'm still something of a conservative whisperer, whisperer in, in, in certain ways. And um, there is um, one particular, uh, uh, while the 1619 Project um, uh, writ large, uh, I think is, is important, uh, is, is, is an important contribution to this discussion that Joe has been talking about that's, that's going on in the country in the context of, of, of uh, the nation and, its, and, its, and, the, and the roots of, of race and, and so forth. Um, th- there are certain criticisms uh, of it in terms of its, of its scholarship and its, in its particular interpretation of history um, that are legitimate, and, and yeah. it's and this is and this is something that even um, you know um, progressives um, who uh, are, are very critical of how 
race has been taught um, uh, it, over the over the over the decades, over the over the centuries. And one particular one, and this is something that I think, and I'm and I'm I'm and I have to temper myself this because I I meant to double check this before we went on. I didn't get a chance. I think this is actually part. Uh, of uh, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones's um, essay is the idea that um, not that um, America was just uh, uh, um, hypocritical in its, in its founding where it says all men are created equal, oh, except for all these people that we've got in bondage over here. Not only is, it, is, is that hypocrisy part of the found story, but there's this, there's an argument within the 1619 project that um, one of the reasons why uh, the colonies broke away from uh, from England was uh, to um, uh, to keep the institution of slavery, um, which is a very controversial and again many historians say that part is just not accurate. It just is not yeah. accurate. And, it, and it's like one of the main stumbling blocks that even those people who are willing to support it in the big picture are, you know, find it really complicated when the 1619 project then ends up sort of fusing into this whole question of critical race theory as well. I think an important yeah, thing though, absolutely. it is true that slavery uh, started to become out of fashion within the European powers of faster than it did uh in, in america but uh you know indentured servitude didn't so <laughs> yeah and it's being rich and and having a name that you could put on a building was still a very prominent thing in europe throughout that well, era well, well, and, that's <laughs> and they true. tend to let them do whatever they want yeah, yeah well, ahead, that's sorry. that's also a fascinating part of this story um because that that is absolutely right and the thing that robert is talking about has led historians to um say you know this is a historical or you know the, the, this doesn't check out and it, it has led to uh, the new york times making some changes and clarifications to it um and, and and a really fascinating thing about academia in this area is that while those historians uh felt the need to call that out and have written essays that are critical of nicole hannah jones when this whole tenure flap happened, some of those same historians, in fact, almost all of them who had been critical of her came forward and said, but you shouldn't deny her tenure. That's yeah, not what I, we do in academia. Say, like, anyone, uh, uh, I've worked at a college, I, you know, I know more than a few people who have, who, who have gotten themselves on the tenure track uh, and I've spoken to them in the last few days and they'll be quick to tell you being wrong about one or two things uh, or a few things in your studies has sure. not stopped anyone from, <laughs> has never been the disqualifier for tenure. Yeah, uh, there's plenty it, of tenured people who are not right uh, yeah, about one or really, two things. It's this really, uh, I mean, it's it's sort of a nerdy academic argument to have, but I find it fascinating about, you know, that the academics consider that you can have disagreements, strong disagreements, even think somebody is completely wrong. Uh, but part of academic freedom is, you know, they publish and then we discuss and we argue and we debate. And, you know, that's how this works. You don't blackball somebody. Um, <laughs> so to speak. So to speak, think, yeah. And I think another thing that comes out of this story that I think might be resonating with people, after four years of Donald Trump being president, ugh, never gets easy to say. <laughs> uh, it's just that like this idea that, you know, the thing people say, he's a symptom of our politics, not the, uh, not, not the cause of the problems. And we always, you know, sort of discover these mini Trumps or, you know, maybe they're not like, I don't know much about this, this uh, Sussman character. Maybe he's not a one-to-one -one comparison to Trump, but like rich people who have a lot of ownership over this and that and the other thing uh you know in their in their little worlds you know and little i don't mean use as pejorative but sort of you, you have these smaller groups across that are donating tons of money to schools mm -hmm. and news organizations and trying to use that influence just to kind of nudge people you know away from some stories and towards others uh and and that has become a thing that you know i think for many people, the, you know, the, the, we, you know, for lack of a better word, people uh, woke up and saw that uh, happening in many different places. And I think probably that part of it is playing a role here, which is, you know, uh, maybe this guy, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe he legitimately is like, oh, I find that disqualifying that one aspect in the European, you know, about European powers. 
but he's fully aware when he offers his opinion that he's offering $29 million worth of opinions. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the other thing is, you know, my interview with Hussman was very interesting because I, I did try to get to the core of what his problem was with her as a professor. And um, on the surface, he will tell you, he doesn't think that she embraces what he calls the core values of journalism. The, I should say that in his newspapers, he, he prints in every edition uh, core values of journalism that he considers, you know, objectivity and all these things, and that he thinks are lacking in modern journalism. And he went on Tucker Carlson to say so. Um, the, uh, oh, well, good. <laughs> He thinks journalism is not objective enough and there's too much opinion mixed in. He, yeah, he, sure. He, hey, uh, to go to Tucker. Yeah. Where, where else would you go? Uh, but uh, so he, he, he'll tell you that he doesn't believe, he doesn't think that, that her philosophy, uh, you know, jives with that. Um, but then when you begin to press him further and say, well, why do you think that? He begins to talk about, you know, is she right on the history? And then when you press him a little further, he goes, well, also, I don't like this. I don't like this essay that she wrote about uh, reparations for slavery. Oh, really? And talk to me about why that's a journalism problem. Um, you know, and it, it, you just, the more you pull at it, the stranger it gets. And I've been having these interactions with readers for, you know, more than a month now, where every time I write about this, I get angry people emailing me, angry people calling me, and they start off with, well, she wrote a thing that's not right. And that, you know, and then you talk to them a little further and they're like, furthermore, I don't like how many black people live in my neighborhood now, you know? Um, and it's just, it, oh, it's really, oh, oh, you mean, you mean to say that this ultimately came down to the fact that, um, uh, an outspoken, an outspoken black woman was getting a prestigious position at the journalism school. So the, you, you, it may have actually come down to that. I'm, I'm like shocked that that stuff, Wait a minute. Still goes, you mean to say that stuff still goes on in, 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 in um in southern states, I'm I'm really stunned at this joke. Robert, you feel a little is, bit more on this? I think America might be racist. Tom, that's that's just going that's just going a little bit too far. I think that's okay. just for, for how right. long? From 1619 or from 1776? Yeah, Let's get this right. <laughs> no. um, I'm curious. Yeah, and, sorry, go ahead. The, the, well, you know, the the but this conversation that we're having, I mean, I've been having for a little while now in the wake of all this. Um about journalistic objectivity is a little bit exhausting to me just because I feel like it, you have to ignore an awful lot of journalism history to have this conversation. That's that's um, what I wanted to ask about. I'm curious, both of you, because both of you are journalists and you both come from uh, slightly different sides of the political spectrum, uh, but you're journalists at heart. And I hear this a lot. I think a lot of people will use objectivity in a disingenuous way. Like they're expecting everyone to just be Tom Brokaw reading exactly what happened, but maybe even less so, just like, you know, the coverage of the OJ trial might as well have been uh, like, uh, man entered house, then two people were dead. Who knows what could have happened? Uh, and I find that it bothers me because I think like objectivity doesn't mean being, being willfully, uh, you know, ignorant or willfully obtuse to what's happening. And I think there are some people who, uh, from a disingen a very disingenuous place, try to always push that. They're like, ah, I miss when journalists used to be objective. They just tell you what was going on and let you decide off the facts. And I don't think that that's true. I don't think letting, you know, like, I, I don't think that, you know, a, a reporter's job is to say like, well, you know, water went over the levees in New Orleans and then people drowned and who knows how it happened. I think their job is to find out how it happened. How do you feel, like, what is it to be on the front lines to do this job and to to sort of you know deal with that criticism, like what does objectivity mean to you, and 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 how do you feel about how it's posited in this day and age, if, Robert if I, Gopher? If, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I could, if I could jump in here, one of the most interesting things um, about this story and how it, it in how it in a sense dovetails um, with this whole question of um, of objectivity and uh, objectivity in journalism and this whole question of, um, of, of trying to come to grips with our history um, is that um, uh, we seem to, one of the parts of history that we've forgotten, you know, put aside the race stuff, is the, is the idea that, uh, is the notion that uh, journalism was supposed to be objective in the first place. Um, if you, you, the, the idea of objective, objectivity in journalism 
is really about um, maybe 120, 130 years old. Um, the, the newspapers, uh, and I, I think we may have had, talked about this at least once on the show, uh, newspapers were uh, newspapers were founded by the founders. Um, newspaper, I mean, not just the New York Post, which was founded by Alexander Hamilton, um, but um, uh, um, Ben Franklin gave some money to a family member uh, to start up a uh, to start up a newspaper. Other um, uh, other founders also had other family members because what was going on at the founding? There was a big political argument in terms of what this nation was supposed to be. Was it supposed to be the, the, uh, the, the was, the, was the Federalist um, vision um, supposed to take plant or, or, or was it the, the, anti, or the, the anti-Federalist? And so these, all these founders said, we need to start convincing um, uh, all of these people in these col- colonies that my, my, my view as opposed to his view is the important one. So let's do that. Let's create, let's, let's make a newspaper and we will push stories um, that will um, identify and crystallize um, our vision and the, the, all the issues um, that are, are, are equivalent to it. That particular, that, that particular idea, that particular concept, uh, that, still, that still exists in newspapers in, in the UK and, and in parts of Europe and so forth. I mean, if you go over, you go over to England, you'll find, you know, the Daily Mail, which is this, um, which is a right-wing rag, you know, that that, that makes, um, well, I won't say that, but it will makes uh, other conservative organizations like, you know, look very centrist over, right, um, yeah. over here. Um, the Telegraph. Newsmax is like, oh, dial it back a bit. Yeah, <laughs> the tele, the Telegraph. Now we're going to throw it to. The uh, Telegraph is centrist. Uh, the Guardian, the Guardian, and the Independent um, are, are 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 left wing. And the public, no, because of their traditions, the public knows um, that they're going to get a, if they pick up the Guardian, they're going to get a left-wing viewpoint uh, or left-wing spin on, on the various stories uh, from the beginning, basically all the way through the sports section. Uh, and if they pick up, if they pick up the sun or the, the mirror or something like that, they're going to get a right-wing spin. And somehow, you know, the UK still managed to survive, even though these are very clearly ideological um, um, ideological in, um, in, in institutions. At some you know point- what bothers me? I just want to quickly say, I think that bothers me about the UK uh, is that they are much smarter than us. Uh, not that they're brilliant, but just like the thing that drives me up the wall is like, if you ever Google Boris Johnson and global warming, he admits that it exists. <laughs> like even their Trump is like, well, of course, science. <laughs> so so, so anyway, just to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to Joe. Um, at some point around the turn of the 20th century, um, we ca- kind of got this idea uh, that uh, American journalism um, needs to be uh, objective with the, with the notable exception of the opinion section and the editorial boards and, 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 things, and, and things like that. And, and, I, and I frankly think, um, uh, you know, I mean, I was very young when I left England. I mean, I was, only, I was only eight years old. I've gone back a couple of times and so forth. And I, every time I go back, I always like, try and pour through all the newspapers because I just, I just love the fact that there's this, there's this push-pull that's going on and there's, and there's a, an, an open and screaming and uh, yeah. passionate debate that's going on. There's a newsboy shouting, extra, extra, Robert George <laughs> came back, get him. Yeah. So, and and we and um, instead, what we have over here, we try and deceive ourselves that you know, with the notable exception of the New York Post, which of course was influenced by Australian and UK papers, and kind of proudly, you know, uh, proudly displays um, its ideological sensibility. You know, the Times tries to pretend, uh, oh well, you know, we're ex- objective except for the editorial page, even though anybody who's looking at it can tell the way certain stories are placed, the 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 vision, the viewpoint, still comes through. There is a certain kind of ideolo- ideology that, that that comes through, even though they try and pretend it's to be, it's 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 objective. Anyway, Robert, do you think uh, when Hamilton died, the cover of the New York Post said? Burr, ham shot dead in cold blood. 
No, because it was not a tabloid at that point. But that is a very funny line. That is oh, a very man. I bet. Uh, let's another one for the well, time machine. Joe, objectivity yeah, what, and journalism. Yeah, well, I mean, what Robert is saying is absolutely true. And and what is wild is that people don't acknowledge that in that period, especially that early American period, ju- journalism in this country was a lot more like Twitter than anything else. I mean, people used pseudonyms, uh, you know, I mean, not, not, that wasn't the exception. That was the rule. Alexander Hamilton did it. Uh, Ben Franklin did it. Uh, You should have seen what Franklin said when they uh, made an all female Ghostbusters. It is disgusting. (laughs) I will never forgive him. Actually, that's not true. Franklin would have loved an all female Ghostbusters. That bastard Hamilton would have hated it. Anyway, continue. That all female Christmas Carol, I tell you, with all the ghosts being women, I mean, was that was a tough one. (laughs) Well, maybe maybe more than like Twitter, it was actually like the the early two thousands blog explosion because everybody was also very wordy nobody was keeping to a certain character limit in that period but um the um yeah so and, and he's yeah, right we don't that, talk enough know, about how twitter stops us from talking after a certain number <laughs> <laughs> it's but it's only it, it was only with like the industrial revolution and sort of this explosion of interest in science that uh journalism this idea came about that journalism should be like a science and we should strive for objectivity and, you know, what objectivity means is an important discussion to have, um, but we've also been having it for the entirety of the existence of journalism in the Republic. Um, it's not a new, it's not a, it's not a new conversation. Mark Twain had jokes about it. Um, you know, th- th- this is a, you know, this is an old, old, old conversation. And what, what has to be acknowledged, you know, with regard to like how this relates to Nicole Hannah-Jones is that when you talk about objectivity in, in journalism, you're, you kind of have to ask yourself what that means. And it means a different thing for the black press. It means a different thing for the Asian press and the Latinx press and the gay press in this country, because those people didn't have the luxury of saying, if we just steer to the middle of the road and we, you know, strenuously try to stay in the middle of the road and pretend like all arguments are equal, probably our journalism will find its best and highest purpose. You know, um, that is, you know, they couldn't do that. And so what you're really, and I, I mean, just in my lifetime, in my journalism career, I've had these incredibly uncomfortable moments where I've been having conversations in newsrooms about whether I'm supposed to assume, because it's a political argument, that the fundamental rights of gay and lesbian people, for instance, are, you know, are, are in question and that we shouldn't be treating them as fundamental rights. Um, you know, that's been the the argument of my time uh, more than, uh, you know, civil rights for, you know, specific, uh, racial groups. Um, but, and now, and now transgender rights, um, you know, those are, those are the arguments of my time, but you know, this, the, the journalists who, who trained me to be a journalist, they had these arguments in the 60s and 70s when we were talking about what was then called the new journalism. And, you know, you guys are there in New York City where they paint murals with Biggie. So, you know, you know that uh, the, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking about Jimmy Breslin. We're talking about Pete Hamill. We're talking about Joan Didion. We're talking about I mean, Joe. Joe, you said Party. murals of Biggie. So, of course, Tom Brennan is relevant. And Tom Brennan, right. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, I mean, like the the... People were asking back He's then. He's a rap you know, guy, is, right? Is, is, <laughs> they were asking. They were asking back then, like you know, is that stuff journalism? You know, is you know, is Tom Wolfe journalism? Is Hunter Thompson journalism? You know, this is a conversation we were having like two generations ago in in journalism, and now we have to have conversations about whether if Nicole Hannah Jones writes an essay about reparations for black people in America, she should be disqualified from. <laughs> writing news stories that have you know racial components it's you know it's 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 a tired old argument and i think we're i think we're well past it i mean the way i look at it is you don't really want me to be objective as a journalist what you want me to be is fair um and i think you know one of the big one of the things i do take some pride in in, in my journalism career is i've been reporting in north carolina uh in political reporting positions for two decades now and there are conservative republicans who will say you know uh, I think Joe Killian's a fair reporter. I don't necessarily agree with him all the time, but he doesn't misquote me. He doesn't take things out of context. He calls me for, you know, a quote if he's going to write about me. He doesn't surprise me with stuff in stories, you know, and, uh, you know, that's what you want from a journalist. You don't want somebody who's pretending not to have a viewpoint or a life or to be a whole person. 
Uh, we'll link your, your Twitter thread in the description of this episode so folks who may not have read it can read it themselves. Uh, but you got, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of big, big name people sharing your very good thread where you really took a deep dive on this, uh, explaining not just this story, but the outcome of the story and your background, your understanding of reporting. Who of the people who amplified it most blew your mind? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a big comics geek. And so, uh, you know, waking up and and scrolling through mentions and seeing Neil Gaiman was a big deal for me. Uh, w. Kamau Bell, uh, uh, you know, put it out there. Um, Zinni Jardin, who I used to read when I was in high school, you know. Um, the, you know, that was, but you know, I'm sure Robert has probably experienced this too. Maybe you too, too, Tom have experienced this. The, the weird feeling that I had about this was I was glad that people were sharing something that I wrote and that's flattering and all that. But at the same time, like I have been writing stories about this, like sometimes daily, uh, and certainly every week for months and, um, people have been paying attention to them and they've been, it's been, you know, it's been making a difference, but this, this thing that I wrote on Twitter, the, the, the story behind that is I woke up on the day that we were going to publish our exclusive interview with Nicole Hannah Jones that we had to wait because it was an embargo <laughs> on it. Uh, and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I was nervous that somebody was going to break this before we did that she was going to Howard. And, um, because I couldn't go to sleep, I decided to write some of the things I was thinking. And I wrote that whole thing in maybe 10 or 12 minutes, just, yeah. you know, just banged it out. And when I hit send on Twitter, it was an immediate explosion and it got much more discussion and interest than anything that I had written as a news story. And that's a little frustrating sometimes. It's like, I mean, you know, the, the, that, uh, that, makes that you wish you had included your that, that Venmo link me. at the end. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, um, it's funny you mentioned that joke because um, that happened to me twice over the last over the last few years. Um, one was when um, was um, like the day of or within the last the, the day or two of the um, Ralph Northam um, blackface story um, breaking, and uh, it was uh, it was a Friday it was a Friday night. And I was, uh, I was, we'd, we'd put the, this is why I was still at the Daily News. We'd put the, um, we put the paper to bed and uh, there was something that was like just nagging at me on this north of a point. And the fact that it had gone, it, 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 this was happening when he had been a graduate, a graduate student uh, in the eighties. And it took me back to uh, an episode when I was still, uh, still an undergraduate at, at, at my, at my college. And just like you, I just, uh, I, I felt I couldn't, uh, I, I felt that I was like, um, that, that the uh, computer has like sort of had me locked to it. And I had to like do this thread uh, um, before I, you know, before I could leave. And uh, it, it was a, I don't know, it was a 12 or 15, um, a 12 or 15 thread piece about this experience that I had when I was living in, I was living in Annapolis and um, um, some, of my, uh, some of my college friends and so forth, you know, came up with the idea of a fundraiser that was, um, uh, uh, it was based on a slave auction. And, oh. and, I had, and, I, and I and some others had told them, you know, you might want to think about the way you want to do this because it, and the thing is the, the, the school we went to was, like, here's was, a way you could think about doing this. You're thinking about doing it, but what if you didn't do it at all? Hmm? Well, what I what I, I, I actually when I first heard that they were thinking about doing something like this, uh, the, the the school I went to is St. John's College in Annapolis, and it's based on the great books. And uh, there, if you wanted to do like a a Greek or Roman slave auction. It's not exactly maybe the, the, the best thing in the world, but there's a way you can you, you, you can frame it, you know, like Spartacus or some- It's, some, not, it's not slave themed, it's Spartacus themed. You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can do, you, and you do, and everybody's, you know, you, everybody's in the togas and the, you know, I mean, it, it, there are ways to get around it, but I, I wake up after I have a conversation with, with a couple of people planning in it, I don't hear anything for a few days, and uh, and then I wake up, uh, and there's like there are flyers all around the all around the um, all around the um, campus. It says 
welcome to 1865. No, no, that's not, that's not what I was talking about. Anyway, so I, but I wrote about this and I, uh, and I got to a point. Oh man, I like to believe that you were like, well, Lincoln fleet freed the slave, so I'll be a Republican. <laughs> that was your origin this story. Is, this is, I'm Robert George and this is my origin story. Um, but so, so I, but I, I wrote about it and at, at the very end of it, I had sort of a grace note because I'd had ended up having a conversation with one of the African-American groundskeepers at the school and we had a kind of a, an interesting heart to, a heart to heart. Uh, so I wrote that and I said, okay, you know, that's it. And then I kind of headed home, like by the, before I'd even got home, it just like it, it had just, it had just, it had just freaking exploded. It had just taken on this life of its own. Next thing I know, I'm getting, um, you know, um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm getting mentioned by, you know, the actress Patricia Heaton saying, "Oh, you know, this uh, uh, this site can be so cruel and 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 uh, draining sometimes, but every now and then you get to, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, fascinating, fascinating and insightful piece, and, and and you know, thank heaven for Robert George and things like, wait, wait, what really going on? And and then last year. Um, in the middle of the of the of the Floyd protests and things like that, I stumbled I stumbled across um, the uh, uh, the interview that um, David Bowie had given in 1983 when he he, uh, he ended up basically turning the tables on the the MTV host yeah. who was interviewing him and and he said well why why don't you have black people why don't you have black artists on there and and th this just kind of popped into my head at the time and said oh well this is actually a good example of like you know systemic racism because the guy says well you know I'm not racist but it's those people in the in the mid Midwest and upstate New York that are racist and that's why we can't put on these black videos and said oh well this is how and Similarly, I ended up getting responses from people saying, "Well, um, wow, you, you you forced me to look at this in a particular different way." And and again, it, it's just completely and totally organic. And uh, and again, and, and again, it was it came from it came from a Twitter thread. It didn't come from you know. It, it, you feel kind of weird that oh well, you know these these uh, these articles or columns that I wrote, you know, where I you know did all this original reporting and research and all this other kind of stuff. And then instead, you know, you, I, I took about half an hour, 45 minutes to do a thread and uh, it explodes and there are thousands of people. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you really, I mean, you, you're not in control of when that happens, but I, I will say that I think that getting back to that objectivity thing, you know, um, I, when I write a news story, uh, even though I try to do it with a little bit of style, you know, I do it in a, a, a news story manner. Um, and when I, you know, when I write on Twitter, I'm a little, I'm a little more loose. And um, I think that the thread that I wrote, um, I haven't had anybody come forward, no matter how they feel about it, whether they agree with it or not, I haven't had anybody come forward and say, I think you made a factual error here. Um, you know, I, I don't think this is how this happened, or I think you're mischaracterizing this. Not a single person has, has said that. Um, in fact, the former director of the North Carolina Republican Party, uh, the executive director of the North Carolina Republican Party, praised it, um, which I thought was very strange. Um, and so uh, no, nobody has said has said that. I think what people are reacting to is that I wrote in a very personal way about this. I talked about my background in journalism and Nicole Hannah Jones's background in journalism and what it feels like to be told by somebody who got handed a newspaper at 27, you know, by his father, you and I are the same. We're both reporters, um, you know, stuff like that. And I think people, people responded to that. And also I said some things that are true, but that you just don't necessarily say in a news story. Like I said, you know, uh, I've worked in newsrooms and I can tell you black women have to work twice as hard to get half as far in, in newsrooms. I've seen it myself. And there, there were some people who were like, well, why would you say that? You know, nobody said you're wrong because I worked in newsrooms and that's not the case, you know. Um, but, you know, just hearing truths like that, that you wouldn't necessarily deliver when you have your, your other hat on um, because they're about personal observations that you've had in your life rather than things you can verify um, through, you know, documents or whatever, um, I think does resonate with people. 
Yeah. I'll say, if you want to have someone fact check your tweets in real time, be pals with Robert George. And every once in a while, <laughs> that DM pops up like, oh, Tom, I don't think that that was right or nice. Uh, by the way, my <laughs> highest performing tweet ever uh, was when I tweeted a photo of Bronson Pinchot and Mark Lynn Baker. Uh, one photo of them while Perfect Strangers was on and then another one of them today side by side which got somewhere in the realm of 3,000 retweets, uh, many of them from Spain and Brazil. And to this day, every once in a while, I will get uh, a new follower from Spain and Brazil, and I will check, and lo and behold, they have retweeted or liked that now four-year-old tweet where I tweeted, <laughs> life comes at you fast, and then the stars are perfect strangers. Uh, thank you very much for this conversation. We're going to leave it here for now. Uh, Robert, we didn't even get to talk about the big news in New York this week, the big story, which is, of course... Uh, the Applebee's in Parkchester, which has been closed for two years, is finally being replaced by a hook and reel, and it opens on July 12th. July 12th, also the day that Hamilton died. So if you're in the Parkchester area on Unionport Road, check out that hook and reel, because let me tell you something. It was heartbreaking to all of us when that Applebee's closed. Applebee's food might not be good, but it was nice that it was there. And I left. I go to England or to Scotland to go to the Edinburgh Fringe to see friend of the show and spouse of the host, Amanda Nicastro. I come back, and it's like Avengers end game this applebee's is gone this has been dead empty and now there's going to be a hook and reel so we made wow. it team the bronx survives uh Amazing. stunning stunning with that uh we'll call it uh for this episode of electoral dysfunction thank you so much joe for making the time joe where, where can folks find you now and and uh if you want to list your venmo to get people to send you money <laughs> my, my writing is at ncpolicywatch.com my uh twitter is at joe killian pw robert where can folks find you on social media Right. Uh, I'm a, a part of the uh, Bloomberg uh, editorial board, uh, and you can find me uh, at Rob George um, on, on Twitter. And you can also uh, go to uh, at B Opinion um, for uh, my columns and the columns of uh, much smarter people than I at, uh, at Bloomberg. Excellent. And I, of course, am Tom Brennan. You can find me on Twitter at Brennanator, on Instagram at Brennanator Graham. And again, we will be doing our first live show since the pandemic at Under St. Mark's Theater on Saturday, July 17th, 7 p.m. If you're in the <clears throat> East Village in New York City, please come check it out. Tickets are available at frigid.nyc. They are going fast, which is marketing speech for, I have no idea if we've sold any tickets yet, but <laughs> assume they're going fast and go buy them right now, frigid.nyc. Uh, we'll see you out there. It's gonna be a great show, great panel lined up uh, to be announced soon. Uh, and thank you, as always, to Declan Chalvey and Jordi Blair for designing the electoral dysfunction eagle. Thank you very much to Joanne Harris for doing the show theme song. Thank you to my pal, Ned Thorne, for doing our show voiceover. I am, again, Tom Brennan. We'll see you next time. <laughs>